0: All right, so we are back in Luke. This is the uh, second week back in Luke. We're jumping in in chapter 18, and we last week looked at a parable about prayer and a bit of a call to uh, to be more bold and persistent in prayer. But as we remember, the focus was on this big picture, praying for ultimate justice to come, God to return. So it wasn't just uh, praying about... It's not saying we shouldn't be, but it was a focus on a particular kind of prayer, that kind of prayer. Big, very big picture prayer. Here, we have a call to what is ultimately to humility in prayer, but it's also a specific kind of prayer. It's a prayer of recognizing ultimate need before the Lord. This is also a big picture prayer. It's not just, uh, you know, pray for my hurt leg or the job interview I have, all of which is appropriate. That's not the focus of this prayer. So we're going to see this uh this prayer this parable about prayer speaking to prayer but also a larger attitude about the things that matter most in life period but in our relationship with the Lord in our following Jesus Um, and a lot of it is pretty self-explanatory I mean Jesus says at the very beginning I I tell this he, he told this parable Luke tells us he does Tell us the parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt, so we, we have a pretty clear picture of what 's going on here um, and the two characters we, we understand pretty well the Pharisee and the tax collector and, and part of the difficulty in coming to this passage is that we uh, we understand them in a way that that makes us miss the punch of jesus 's parable in the beginning. Uh, we have this uh, just a classic example, you know, thousand year old example of the humble brag from the Pharisee, uh, familiar with this term, humble brag. Uh, you know, it's when you try to come across as humble, but you really want to, uh, brag about yourself. Um, I, it's actually, uh, I, I looked this up on, uh, the interwebs and, uh, a comedian had gathered a bunch of tweets that were essentially humble brags, even maybe turned it into a book. I did not get the book, but I looked at some of the tweets and, um, Adam Levine, who, or Levine, I don't know, uh, Maroon 5, uh, he is a judge in one of the singing shows as well. He says, wow, we got mobbed at the airport. I I think they thought we were Justin Bieber. So trying to be humble, not Justin Bieber, but, you know, noting that they got mobbed. They're popular enough to get mobbed. Uh, Then um, this must have been in the college admissions scandal, the, the height of that. Somebody tweets. Can we start a media campaign to question how I got into Columbia too? Still scratching my head about how I I got accepted and demand answers. So I got into Columbia, everybody. Um, And then here's a a good one. I I just did something very selfless. But more importantly, it was genuine. And I know it means a lot to the person in the long run. Hashtag so worth it. and then, sadly, uh, a little, a little bit sadly, uh, from a well-known pastor, I'm truly humbled. Humble brag. I'm truly humbled. You follow my tweets. I pray they enrich your life and strengthen your ministry. God bless all 200,000 of you. Everybody, I have 200,000 followers. That, that wasn't for me, by the way. I did tweet one time, though. So. Um, Right, we're going to look at this passage and hopefully find both encouragement and challenge, uh, maybe to avoid the humble brag ourselves. Uh, we're going to look at the place, we're going to look at the people, and then the provision. So, the, the place, the people, and the provision. Let me pray for us. Lord, open our hearts and minds to the truth of your word. Would you meet us here in this time that we might be humbled? That we might understand who we are and that we might understand the hope that you offer. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Getting okay, so used to having the mask on that I just had kept it on, I took it off though. All right, the place. Uh, Jesus, again, he's telling this parable about 2,000 years ago and he's speaking to uh, Pharisees, and probably his disciples are there, but they all would have had this very clear picture of uh of a cultural context that we often miss that we're off it's not top of mind for us so we, we might not think in detail about what the implications are of verse 10 that the two men went up to the temple to pray now they went up up to the temple the temple was on a hill so no matter what direction you were coming from you went up to the temple and then down when you left and it was this representation of a lot of things, but most significantly, the presence of God. And the presence of God brought about and experienced in two different ways uh, in particular. One being sacrifice, and two being prayer. So they're, they're, they're going to this place, the temple, where sacrifices are made so that the people of God might be made right with their creator. So they have this deep understanding that the the hearers of this uh, original parable would have had this deep understanding of the fact that there was a problem with human beings, that their relationship with the creator was broken, and that he had provided a way to restore that relationship. So a few years ago, uh, if you were here a few years ago, I preached through Leviticus. And Leviticus is this book that feels over, it's a bunch of sacrificial laws and ceremonial laws and all these things that don't really make sense to us. But we talked about the fact that, that God gave these rules and these, these, this guidance for the tabernacle and then the temple so that his people could have relationship with him. Because without his provision, without sacrifice, without these opportunities that God offered we're not able to be in relationship with the holy God. And in the story of the Bible, from Genesis 3, when the fall occurs, is that every single human being has this problem. That every single one of us has this problem. That we have broken relationship with God, and we need it to be made right. So in their mind, the hearers of this parable would have known the significance of the temple. And that when these two guys go up to pray that there almost certainly would have been the smell of smoke in the air. Now, it might have been the smoke of incense that gives a picture of and speaks to the sweetness of God, but it was also very likely that it would have been the smoke of sacrifice, that that there was a cost to rebellion against God, that there was a cost to our sin, to us missing the mark, to us not living as we were called to live, and that the, the sacrifices had to be made so that we could be in right relationship with God. And that's in the background. It's that's, that's very clear the picture. They would have known this need. This is one of the things that we recognize every week as we confess our sin, that, that there's a problem that we have. There's a solution, and it's Jesus. It's not us, as Matt talked about when we came to the confession, that we can't get it together, that we need Jesus. That's why we confess our sins. That's why we have the assurance of pardon. We're, we're not going to get it together we need to sit with that need. We, we don't always recognize that. We don't always sit in the place that these hearers would have of recognizing that there was this need for us to be made right with God. We, we might think that we're okay. We might either think that we're good enough or that we're just not that bad anyway. But the call here is to recognize this is a foundational part of the story that Jesus is, is entering It's also incredibly helpful to recognize that Jesus is telling this story as he is there on this earth to be a sacrifice himself, to be actually the ultimate and final sacrifice so that these sacrifices in the temple are no longer necessary. The temple was necessary at this point. We know the rest of the story that the temple isn't necessary for sacrifices to be made because Jesus was that final and ultimate sacrifice. That's what we remember and celebrate every Sunday at the Lord's table. That we don't have to smell the smoke of sacrifice anymore because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. So that's clearly in the mind of the readers of this first parable. They will have known the rest of the story of Jesus. We know as we read this parable that Jesus is that ultimate sacrifice and that we don't need the temple for that reason. But the second thing that we see is this purpose of the temple is the place to go and pray, to experience the relationship with God that is offered because of the sacrifice that he made. So these two guys, they go up to pray and uh, they probably are going up at one of the times of prayer. So it's probably 9 a.m. or 3 p.m. And there are probably a bunch of other people around as well. It, it, it actually kind of helps us understand uh, the humble brag from the Pharisee. Like other people are hearing this. He's, he's doing this probably for uh, his own like, self-justification, but also to justify him before others. Because uh, the, the result of thinking that you are righteous yourself is that you would treat others with contempt. And so he's standing with contempt toward the, the tax collector because there are others that have gone into this place to pray. To, to enter into that relationship. Prayer is this, this intimate part of our relationship with the Lord that is available because of the sacrifices that were made. And there was, a, a, at this moment, there was something significant to the temple, now, there's something significant to the temple. The temple now is the body of Christ. It's the people of God gathered together. But we also are able to experience the presence of God and pray to him just as individuals. There's something significant to experiencing that together, that we're called to experience that together. We gather for worship every Sunday. I encourage you to uh, pray with your community groups, to join us for prayer on Friday mornings over Zoom at 9 a.m. Uh, that, that prayer is something that does happen together with the people, but it doesn't require the temple anymore. This is part of the work of Jesus uh, as well. But prayer is significant to this relationship. We have, now this is the second week that we've had this new daily prayer project guide. They're out there on the table. They they last for a few months each. uh, And it's uh, a guide to both pray and read the word of God. And it's just a tool that is available to you to, to Foster your relationship with the creator of the universe to enter into prayer. And you don't need a temple. You can take it home and you can use it and uh, you can use it anywhere. And that's a, a beauty that we have now that we don't have to go to the to the temple, but we still have access to his presence. I, I think this idea of having access to his presence of the the fact that the temple represented his presence is, uh, is something that we need to, to sit with and, and remember again and again that the presence and being with him, it's easily accessible. I, I was uh, talking this weekend with friends about the fact that there are some that have some level of nostalgia for the lockdown. I, I even read that uh, some younger folks were sharing memes that were nostalgic for the lockdown, you know, a few months ago, right? And, and I don't have nostalgia for the lockdown, but there were things that were, that the slowing down was nice, right? And so now as I uh, desire to meet with people and often spend more time trying to schedule that than I do with them, because life is busy, people are doing things, uh, it's, it's hard, right? I, I do not like scheduling. It's not my favorite thing. Uh, and I'm also, uh, will often be bad at it. Uh, Steph will say, do you have a lunch with Kyle at 12, I mean, uh, at, yeah, at 12 a.m.? Actually, I, I don't. That was supposed to be 12 p.m. Uh. And so then it won't show up on my calendar. This is this is my, uh, you know, some of my weakness. And um, the, so the, when I think back to things that I did like about the lockdown is I could walk and ride my bike uh, to many of your homes and know that you were going to be there. Now, my wife noted that for an introvert, that might be a nightmare. But, uh, but we do need relationship. Uh, she, we all recognize we need to be in relationship with folks. I'm an extrovert. And so the fact that I could just go to somebody's house and have a conversation with them on the porch, and know that they were gonna be there was, was really great. I loved. that. I didn't have to schedule, it just, it just show up. And if that was inconvenient for you, I'm sorry. Uh, but we have even easier, even better access to our guide, to the creator of the universe. That the temple that represented that now is available to us anywhere, uh, anytime. And then the way that we do that access, the way that we approach him, we see play out uh, with these two different people. Uh, One commentator noted that that two men go up to pray, but only one did. And we know the story. It's very clear the way that Jesus tells the story. I I don't have to build up to the conclusion of, oh, the tax collector, he was the one that was in the right position, right? He's the one who prays. The Pharisee doesn't. And, And if we've been in church for any period of time or even like remotely connected to church or Christianity, we know the story, right? We know the Pharisees are terrible. They are hypocrites. Jesus calls them the whitewashed tombs. They look good on the outside and they're terrible inside. There's death on the inside. That's the story, right? We know that. Look at this self-righteous guy who's looking on others with contempt. And the tax collector, he's the lovable scoundrel that Jesus hangs out with and, uh, and Jesus goes to meals with, right? We like the tax collector and we hate the Pharisee. That, we know the story. To be clear, that is not at all how the original hearers would have heard this. The Pharisee was absolutely the good guy and the tax collector was absolutely the bad guy. The Pharisees were the religious leaders and they were actually doing things that they should do. Like the fact that they had things together on the outside, like that that was good. It's, it's, it's he brags uh, here, he notes that it's, it's, it's good not to be an extortioner or unjust or an adulterer. It's good to fast. Now he, he kicks it up a notch, quite, quite a notch. Now, Old Testament law would, would require a fast once a year on the day of atonement. So he does that and then he kicks it up by a multitude of 104 um, because he's going to fast twice a week, right? Like but fasting is good. And not only does he fast, he gives tithes of all that he gets. Giving a tithe is good. That's something to, to celebrate. Let me encourage you to fast and tithe. That's not the application from here, but that is absolutely true. So the things he's doing are good. And, and yet the problem is that he's trying to justify himself. He's trying to, to line up these things, these good standards even, and say that as a result... That he is justified. That's the language that's used in verse 14. What does that mean? It means to, to it's this legal term to be declared righteous. To be declared right. To go back to the first verse that we looked at, verse 9. He thinks that in himself, he trusted in himself that he was righteous. That essentially, essentially that his, his life made sense. That he could have a relationship with God. That he didn't have uh, any, any problem to overcome. Declared righteous, justified. These are terms that are actually that we need, that we need these things to be, be true for us. And sometimes we think about it as justifying our lives and our existence and the way that we live. We justify the things that we do on a, a regular basis. And, and we might be followers of Jesus. And we might then as a result be using biblical guidelines to justify ourselves. But it's also true that all around us, everyone has a different list for how they justify their existence and the way that they live life and do things. And it's not necessarily a, a, a biblical list. We have lots of rules in our culture now about how you can live and the things that you can do and the things that you can, you can say. And, and, and we might affirm some of those and not affirm others. But there are guidelines within any group, within any community, there are guidelines And and people can feel good about themselves if they need enough and then bad about themselves if they don't. And we find ourselves tempted to live like the Pharisee. If we're followers of Jesus, to be clear, if you're a follower of Jesus, you you have said and communicated the words the tax collector does. God be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus is not putting followers of him in that category. And yet it is a temptation for every one of us. It's a temptation to regularly compare ourselves to others. And this is one of the ways that we seek to justify ourselves. We look at another person, whatever category that we might be struggling in, and we can always find somebody who's not doing as good as we are. It it, it doesn't matter what the category is. It doesn't matter what the struggle is. Uh, We can always find someone to compare ourselves to say, I'm not, thank goodness, I'm not like him. I'm not like her. This is something to celebrate, right? We, we find ourselves here all the time. We're constantly, constantly comparing ourselves and it is detrimental to us. I uh, referenced a, a study that came out of, an internal study that made the news, internal study at Facebook about mm-hmm. Instagram and its effect on uh, particularly uh, teen girls. And, and I, I read the study and I, I, I think about that and I'm like, yeah, the study happened to be with teen girls, but it's true for everybody. Like we're, we're constantly comparing ourselves And either feeling good about ourselves or feeling shame uh, about ourselves. And what we find here is something totally different. And we we could whatever the standard is, uh, this is our temptation to be like the Pharisee and to say, to do the maybe it's the humble brag, right? Thank you God that I'm not like X. Thank you God that I'm not like the person who doesn't care about unborn children. Thank you, God, that I'm not like the person who doesn't care about women. Thank you, God, that I'm not like the Republican. Thank you, God, that I'm not like the Democrat. I mean, you talked about the polarization that exists, that exists that what we call negative polarization, that we're defining ourselves more and more about what we're against, finding ourselves in our value and who we're not. Thank you, God, that I'm not like the religious zealot, or thank you, God, that I'm not like the atheist. And we read this and we might think, thank you, God, I'm not like that Pharisee. I get grace. I understand. Thank you that I'm not like that church that doesn't get grace. That's our temptation. It we fill in the blank. And, and there, please hear that irony that, that we would so be so quick to say, thank you, God, that I'm not like this Pharisee. The Pharisee is seeking to justify himself. We are tempted to do the same thing. The tax collector, on the other hand, completely different attitude. And to be clear, the tax collector was not a lovable scoundrel. The tax collector was evil. So you just start with the fact that he collected taxes and people are uncomfortable with that, they don't like it. Even if you agree, okay, taxes are necessary. If the IRS knocks on your door, you're not excited about it. You have to uh, write a check or you have to have money deducted from your check. You don't love that. But tax collectors at the time They took it up a whole nother level. It was just standard practice. Every tax collector, this is why they're thrown in with the tax collectors and sinners, they were extortioners. Thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers. Tax collector falls into every one of those categories. Categories are not good, to be clear. And the tax collector falls into every one of those. He's an extortioner. He extorts, that's just what he does for his job. He extorts money from other people. He is a thief. Think about the, the it, it, don't get on next door. But if you're on there, you see all the complaining about porch thieves. And just saw uh, last night, somebody stole a, a Halloween decoration that had been put out the night before for their kids, right? And, and there is righteous indignancy at this, right? This is wrong. And, and it, it, it's, it's maddening. They are thieves and it shouldn't happen. We should be able to uh, have the stuff that, that we have, be generous with it, yes, but it shouldn't be stolen out of our yards. And, and we get angry at that. The, the tax is a thief at a whole other level. I mean, he is evil and unjust. I and mean, then he's an adulterer, and this is going back to biblical language throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, because he's turning away from his God. Because at this moment, the Jews are an occupied people. The promised land that they are in, they don't have control of. They are occupied by the Romans. And so this tax collector is a Jew working for the Romans. He is treasonous. And it's not just national treason, it's religious treason. It's it's treason in every way. And and it, it was wrong on so many levels. The tax collector is not a lovable scoundrel. Think about that person in your mind that... You cry out about the injustice and the wrongness of what they're doing. That's who this is. And at the end, he's the one who goes away justified. Because, what does he say? What is his prayer? It's not a humble brag. It's just straight up humility. Standing far off, verse 13. He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. He doesn't, he he knows he's not worthy. He beats his breast. It's this posture of mourning. God Be merciful to me, a sinner. This word for mercy here, mercy is used often in the New Testament. It's used, this particular Greek word is used twice. Here and in Hebrews, when we see that Jesus is the ultimate high priest, that this is this ultimate sacrifice, covering of sin, covering of iniquity, forgiveness of our sin and brokenness. That's the kind of mercy that he's he's crying out for here. Forgive my sin. Draw me into a relationship with you. I do not deserve it. I need you desperately. I need you desperately. He knows his need. And here's the difference between the tax collector and the Pharisee. It's not that either one of them deserve God's love. Both of them have deep need of God's mercy. But the tax collector recognizes it. The tax collector owns it. And the tax collector goes before the Lord and he says, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. It does not matter who you are. It does not matter how pretty your life looks. It does not matter how often you pray and read your Bible. Those things matter on one level, but they do not matter for your position before the Lord. We all have desperate need. And the call is to be like the tax collector and to recognize that. And it is true whether you recognize it or not. That's the parable here. That's what Jesus is saying. You might in your pride not see your need, but it is there. So my son Patton is in Mexico and he's been there now for a little over two months and it has not been the full experience that he was hoping for because of COVID. They did online only school for uh, over a month and he'd been there for a while before that. And uh, what it's meant is that for those seven weeks about, he, he was mostly in this one home with this small group of people, not able to go out. I mean, yes, there were some excursions, but it was, it's was it been hard, right? And so my conversation with Patton, even over the last few days was, um, he he says, is it, is it right to say that I, I, I love you guys more um, as he misses us? And that he was, we were talking about actually, Steph and I and his sisters. Um, and, and he said, I, I, I have felt my need of you guys more. So we've had amazing conversations uh, over these couple months uh, about just life in general, about the gospel, about God's provision. And, and he says, I've always known that I've needed you. But I've experienced the, the, the need and the provision in a new way as I've been here and had conversations with all of you. And it's, like, beautiful on many levels, right, for us. And, uh, and yet, it's such a picture of our reality with the Lord. The need is always there. And we might even give like some head knowledge, acknowledgement of it, right? Oh yeah, uh, we need the Lord. But what he's calling us to is to sit in that reality. To humble ourselves in a way that recognizes our need of the Lord. Every single one of us, all the time, desperate need of the Lord. So that we find ourselves at the last point, his provision. His provision. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And the point is nobody can trust in themselves for righteousness. You're not going to get there. It doesn't matter what your standard is, you will never live up to it. And you certainly won't live up to the standard that the Lord sets. Every single one of us, this is true so we cannot provide for ourselves whether we're the tax collector or the pharisee neither one of them justify themselves so to be clear the tax collector does not justify himself by praying god be merciful to me a sinner it's not something that he does what he's doing he's relying upon the work of the lord he's trusting in the lord he's he's humbling himself before the lord for his justification for his righteousness For him to be allowed to be in relationship with the Lord. And what is offered? Exactly what he hopes for. Forgiveness of sins, justification, a declaration of righteousness, a relationship with the Lord. That's what he's given. Because the Lord provides it. Because the other place that this Greek word for mercy occurs is in Hebrews when it says that Jesus Christ is the ultimate high priest. That he's the ultimate sacrifice, that he's done it all. So when we look and trust in him, we find forgiveness of sins. We find justification that we will never find on our own. And so we look and trust in his life and his death and his resurrection, and we find hope. We find relationship with him. We find justification. And we then can give up striving to reach it on our own. We can allow it to affect our lives in deep and meaningful ways, but we know that we're not earning his favor. We're not earning righteousness. We're not constantly having to justify our lives before him and before others. And that it then has also dramatic impacts on the way that we treat one another so that we don't become ones who treat others with contempt, but we're able to treat them with love because of the humility of our trusting in God and not in ourselves. This is beautiful and hope-giving and life-giving that that evil one goes away justified. And it's a challenge not to find ourselves in the position of thinking that we're not the evil one. But when we find ourselves in that position, humbling ourselves in that way, then we're able to sit in his love and his care and being in relationship with him. Would we all find that hope? Would we all find that security and be able to give up on our strivings that get us nowhere? Let me pray.